All right. Turn with me again in your Bibles to Revelation chapter one. We are in part three and the last part, if you will, of the opening introduction to our study in the book of Revelation. And we'll be moving in, uh, Lord willing, um, in about a month from now into the letters to the seven churches. But before that, uh, we want to look this morning at verses seven and eight. So what have we learned in the first six verses? There are some important themes that have come out um, as we've studied through this. And I just want to touch on them briefly. I don't want to spend a great deal of time in review this morning, but just to highlight some of these themes for, for our consideration. Um, Verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. There are many that look at the book of Revelation as a mystery, as a book of hidden symbols or truths. And it's important for us to understand that it is the exact opposite for the believer. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it is a revealing of the full character of who he is as Savior and ruling King. And the simple application of this, and we, we spend a lot of time talking about context and what, what the believers in the direct context at the time this, these letters were written to the seven churches, what were they going through? And these believers are oppressed, beleaguered, embattled, um, engaged in, in heavy spiritual conflict. And the encouragement for those churches And I think us as well is that we're to take our eyes off of that, not ignore it, not pretend it doesn't exist, and to put our eyes on Christ. We'll talk more about that this morning. And I was thinking as we look at um, these two verses today, verses 7 and 8, when was the last time you thought about and meditated on the fact that Christ is coming soon? really thought about that because it is a transformative truth as we unwrap that in scripture. And we'll look at that this morning, but the more that truth sets in for us as believers, it changes the way that we live. And I ask you that question. It's a convicting question for me. When was the last time you pondered and thought about the fact that Christ is coming soon? Um, Verses 1 and 2 tell us that the revelation was given to show his servants what will shortly take place. Um, Romans 8.23 reminds us that we will soon see our redemption in its full glory. And and in verse 23 of Romans 8, it says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly. For adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, that is the full redemption. Um, Mark, you mentioned this morning in Bible study that if we don't like getting together now, we won't like getting together then. But we'll be different then. We will be transformed um, without sin. Um, And what an amazing picture that will be. Verses 1 and 2 also pointed out that there is this heavenly chain of custody where this truth is given to John for us, tracing it back. It comes to John through an angel. It comes to the angel through the person of Jesus Christ, and it comes to the person of Jesus Christ through the heavenly father. So John is telling us that this truth that we are considering comes directly from the throne of God to us. And here's the convicting thought about that. If, if you knew that this word, the word of God, came directly from the throne of God to us, would it impact us any differently? What would that do in how we obeyed? Now, we would confess as a church that we believe that this is the word of God. And we believe that. But think about the fact that that John shows very carefully this is coming right from the throne directly to the church. 
and how important a message that is. And verse three, a relevant blessing. There's a blessing for reading it aloud, but also for hearing and keeping the um, and hearing and keeping this revelation will ultimately result in God's blessing to the church. It takes more than just reading and hearing, but doing. Verse four, we looked at the fact that these were seven real churches in need of real grace. What do I mean by that? Well, these churches are just like us. They are in need of the gracious presence of the Spirit of God to complete the calling that they are called to, just as you and I are. We looked at verses four through six, the blessings from the triune throne, and listed out last time we met a couple weeks ago, the blessings that come directly to us from the throne of God and what that means. Grace, peace, love, forgiveness, freedom from our sins and direct access to the throne. These are all distinctives that John points out as blessings directly from the throne of God to the believer. And then the, the, the natural result that comes from that in verse seven is um, in verse six is that um, we worship him. That's all we can do. We worship. So this morning, I want to look at verses seven and eight. And there are two points, only two points this morning, I promise, just two. These two points are a promise to return. We see this in verse seven and then verse eight, a promise with power. I want to consider this morning what what scripture promises us in verse seven. Let's begin with prayer. We cannot forget that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help this morning. Um, Lord, distractions abound for us, and we need your help to fix our eyes on Christ. We ask that you would sanctify us this morning with your word. Father, we know that if we harbor sin, that it will diminish the preaching and the teaching, the hearing, the reception of your word, and ultimately the obedience to it. We ask, Lord, that you would cleanse us this morning, that you would prepare our hearts. Father, I pray for the little ones among us, Lord, that you would, um, even in their very young ages, that you would plow their hearts and prepare them to receive your word, that you, through the power of the Spirit of God, would work regeneration where there are dead among us, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would, you you would open your word this morning. That you would help us to understand that you would help me as I do my best to share what you've given to me. Lord, that your sheep would be fed this morning and that we would be empowered as we leave from here to glorify you where you have sent us to be. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Verse 7 begins with an interesting word, and that is behold. We don't often say it. It's not used commonly in the English language, but he begins the latter part of this introduction by saying, behold, he is coming with clouds. This is a continuation of the previous thoughts. And if it feels a little bit um, out of place, it's not. It's in context. And it's important that we understand that this is a point of encouragement for the church. And I, I mentioned when we started, we don't necessarily ponder this as often as we should. And I don't want to do that this morning for just a little bit. Um, John says this, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him <clears throat> and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So the first word, behold, um, it is for you English grammar scholars amongst us. This word is given in the aorist active imperative. Jesse, you're right on top of it. I can see it. This is a tense in which this word is given. And when you put all three of these these terms together, 
It is describing the result of something that happens in the past and gives rise to action. Okay. And then with it comes a command to take action in the present. So when you hear or you see the word behold here, it is, it is designed and intended in this, in this um, communication to cause us with an exclamation to look, get your attention. This is a flashing neon billboard. Look. And John says, by way of encouragement to the beleaguered and battled church, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Behold, look, adjust your focus. The question, and I, I really pondered this as I'm meditating on this passage, is what captivates our focus? What are the things that captivate our focus? I can think of a lot of things. Teething babies. Maybe misbehaving babies. Um, trouble at work. Anyone? How about the bill that you just received where they filled your propane tank? Um, a vaccine mandate you're dealing with at work. Um, the list of distractions and things that can pull our attention and focus are many. You, you guys could all list 10 right off the top of your head. And the question for us to consider this morning is where is our focus? What are we thinking about? What are we looking at? Because the distractions are endless. And John, with this bold proclamation of behold, look, change and adjust your focus, is there to encourage the church that is incredibly distracted with persecution, tribulation, and a lot going on as we read the context of what was happening in the early church. So what is captivating our focus this morning? What gets our attention? Matthew 6, 25 through 34, and I'm going to give you a lot of scripture this morning. Um, Lord willing, it will all be in context, but jot these references down. Matthew 6, 25 through 34, therefore I will tell you, do not be anxious. Take excessive care or fear or worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Now, is scripture here telling us that these are not important? All of you found it important to put clothes on this morning. That is a good thing. There is importance there. And we, we talked about in our Bible study this morning that God, recognizing the physical needs of the church, established the role of who? What? The deacons. The deacons. It's not to minimize these things. They are real. We go to work to earn money, to take care of our families, to clothe them constantly as they grow out of them and feed them and to care for them. But what happens when these become the focus and the driving um, attention of our life? What happens? The, the natural result of that is anxiety. Is there any anxiety in our society right now? Anything to be anxious about? I think, and I haven't seen uh, statistics, statistics lately, but um, anxiety is up. There's a little thing called a pandemic that we've been dealing with for the last almost two years. Um, suicide rates are up. Where's our focus? He said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Important question. <laughs> and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious or overwhelmed with concern about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed <laughs> like one of these. But if God so clothes, so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what, what shall we eat 
or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He uses the word seek in this passage and seeking requires searching for something that's been lost with strenuous effort. It is a it is a single minded focus. So when he's telling you don't seek after all these things that the Gentiles are seeking after, he's saying the focus of their life is stuff. The stuff. Put the emphasis, the strenuous effort into seeking things that will last. I.e., Jesus said his kingdom and his righteousness seek what will last. So as I'm, as I'm thinking about this, I get this email in my inbox, and I, I don't know, I think I was talking to Ken the other day. Um, some people have an incredible reach beyond the grave, and I get Charles Haddon Spurgeon in my inbox every day. <laughs> Who would think if he knew the impact that he would have downstream of him to later generations, um, I'm sure he would be immensely humbled knowing the man that he was. But in this um, daily devotional that I got this morning, it's about beholding. I'm like, wait a minute. Accident? I don't think so. Isaiah 49, 16. This was the basis of his devotional. I'll read it. It's short. He said, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. No doubt part of the wonder that is concentrated in the word behold is on account of the contrast with the unbelieving lament of the preceding sentence. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. How amazed the divine mind seems to be at this wicked unbelief. What can be more astounding astounding than the unfounded doubts and fears of God's favored people? The Lord's loving word of of rebuke should make us blush. He cries, how can I have forgotten you when I have engraved you on the palms of my hands? How dare you doubt my constant remembrance when the memorial is carved upon my own flesh? Oh, unbelief, what a strange marvel you are. We do not know what to wonder at most, the faithfulness of God or the unbelief of his people. He keeps his promise a thousand times, and yet the next trial makes us doubt him. He never fails. He is never a dry well. He is never a setting sun, a passing meteor, a melting vapor, and yet we are as continually troubled with anxieties, molested with suspicions, and disturbed with fears as if God were a mirage of the desert. Behold, is a word intended to stir our admiration. Here indeed we have a theme for marveling. Heaven and earth may well be astonished that rebels should attain such a closeness to the heart of the infinite love to be written on the palms of his hands. Quote, I have engraved you, unquote. It does not say your name. The name is there, but that is not all. I have engraved you, Consider the depth of this. I have engraved your person, your image, your circumstances, your sins, your temptations, your weaknesses, your wants, your works. I have engraved you. Everything about you, all that concerned you, I have put all of this together here. Will you ever say again that your God has forsaken you when he has engraved you on his own palms? Behold. Verse 7 said, he is coming. Here is the promise of a bodily return to complete the redemption of his people. We read in in Romans the groaning that we have waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Acts 1, 6 through 11 reminds us that this was the ascension of Jesus. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to excuse me, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was, um, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus will come the same way he left? Amen. What does our culture tell us? Our culture says, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? Second Peter 3. I'm going right there, brother. Second Peter 3, verse 1. This is what Peter says. Now, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring or waking up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Are you saying that the church that Peter wrote to didn't necessarily have the, the return of Christ on their minds? Yes. Humanly speaking, we are easily distracted. He said, I'm stirring or waking up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Why do we gather together regularly? We need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. And he says this, verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. What's a scoffer? So, what's that? A hater. Haters, yes. That's a, a good modern-day linguistic way of putting that. Scoffers are those that act in childlike or childish fashion. Their goal in life is to play. Talking about sober-mindedness in, in Bible study this morning. The scoffer plays. The scoffer dances. The scoffer jests. The scoffer mocks. And the scoffer is all about living for today. And when the scoffer sees the believer who is sober-minded, looking for the coming return of the Lord Jesus Christ, he mocks him. Bible's a joke. It's not real. Where is the promise of his coming? Verse 4, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter says they overlook a very important fact. Verse 5, that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of, the, of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. What is Peter saying? God, when he created the earth, created the storehouse of water. Did, did it surprise God that he was going to flood the earth? In the time that God created water and the time God flooded the earth was years. And what, what did Noah deal with when God said, build the ark, I'm going to judge the world, and you're going to go into the ark. While you're building some 200 years, you're going to be preaching. And what did they do? They scoffed. You're crazy. You're nuts. They didn't even know what rain looked like. And what happened? We know what happened. And God had, from the very beginning, established the very means by which he would judge the world. Peter reminds them of that. Verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord one day, we're with the Lord one day as is a thousand years, and as a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Don't mistake the absence of God's return now with his inability or um, indecisiveness, if you will, in fulfilling his promise. Peter warns us, don't make that mistake. Don't do it, because there's a reason he hasn't come back yet. 
He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Now, who are the you? Well, if you read who he's addressing in 1 Peter, it's the church. It's the beloved. He said, not wishing that any should perish. Now, there are some that take this for universalism, but he's speaking directly to the church. The Lord is not willing that his church should perish, but that that all should reach repentance. So what is Peter saying? The reason there is a delay in the return of Christ, not a delay, if you will, but from our perspective, why is he not coming back yet? There's one reason that Peter gives, and that is God's long-suffering and his patience towards his elect. When the last elect child of God is brought into the fold. That last sheep is brought into the fold. There is nothing preventing his return. And Peter says, don't mistake that window of time where it seems like God is not acting as if he's fallen asleep at the wheel or if he's not keeping his promise. Big mistake. Since all these things, um, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All those things that we're working for and striving for, what happens to them? Rubble. Our forever home. Rubble. 30-year mortgage. Rubble. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. Here is the meat of it, guys. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And look at this, verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of, uh, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to, listen, his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. Have you ever thought about something? Is there a reason that we may want to delay the return of God? Have you ever thought about it? Well, Lord, could you wait to come back till I get married? Could you wait to come back till I have kids? Could you wait to come back till I have grandchildren? Could you wait to come back till I have achieved retirement? I've met all my fiscal goals for my life. <laughs> I want you to see something. Our attachment to this world and, and, our, and the draw of this world on our lives can cause us to want to push off that impending return. We got to be careful there. This world has an appeal. It has an attraction. There are things about it that we really like. And all of it's going to burn. There will be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And Peter reminds us, in light of all of this, what are you supposed to be like? He said he will come with the clouds. This speaks to the majesty of Christ and to his triumphant return. And I, again, directly impacts how I live right now. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep. Think about this. This is a mind-blowing thought. Just let your mind think about this passage. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not proceed or be first or go before those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now think about what he just said. 
if we are alive at the return of the Lord, what will we see? What will we be witnesses to? What will you have a front row seat to? Peter, uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 makes it very clear that if you are alive at the return of Christ, now there are those that sleep. You could be in that group. But we will be firsthand witnesses of the resurrection of those that sleep. And then we will be gathered with the Lord in the air. Think about that. We will be firsthand witnesses of the triumphant Christ who conquered death and hell on our behalf. We will see those enemies put down. How is that possible? We will see death overwhelmingly conquered firsthand in person. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but what? We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, while we, if the Lord comes back today, while we are being changed, those that are asleep will be brought back to life bodily. And we will be glorified together with him. We will see that with our own eyes. I can't wrap my brain around that. I cannot. That is a mind-blowing thought to me. And it is the sheer power of the Lord Jesus Christ that will do this. We look at the, the valley of the dry bones in Ezekiel, where he calls up the bones and puts flesh, puts them all back together, puts flesh on them, and brings them back to life. That is what we're looking at. The absolute power of God where he speaks it into existence. And I can't process it. I can't. I believe it. Do you believe what the scripture says? Do you believe that? I can't process it. I can't get my brain around it. We were one of the, the benefits of living out in the middle of nowhere is we don't get trash pickup. So every Saturday I go to the dump and it's a labor of love because I go up on the parkway. It gives me an excuse to get up on the parkway. And it is especially beautiful right now. The leaves are stunning. And it is my favorite time of the year. It reminds me so much of many, many fond childhood memories. This is my favorite time of the year. It was my mom's favorite time of the year. And I have always loved the beauty of fall. And we were talking about it. And it's just something that stuck with me. As, as we see summer come to an end and we see um, essentially the decay of death set in on nature where the leaves begin to change and we know we're in for a long, cold winter. There's something about the beauty that we see knowing that come spring, there will be a, a type of recreation in which life will be brought back. And, and what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, don't be ignorant about this, brothers, for those who sleep, don't grieve like others that have no hope. Do you know what he's saying here? For the life of the believer that falls asleep in Christ, that dies, as we say, that death is beautiful in Christ when seen through the lens of the resurrection. When we see death as God sees it for the believer, growing old is not something we should dread. It's something that we should invite. It's something that's beautiful. Why? Because when my hair turns gray as it is and it starts to fall out, it reminds me that there is renewal coming. Just as the leaves on the trees, when they turn all these beautiful shades of color, will fall to the ground and the trees will look barren and dead. There is a reminder in that beauty that the following spring, life is brought back. And it's something that should encourage us and, and Paul wants to remind us to think about this. At the coming of the Lord, we will be brought, we will be resurrected just as the Lord Jesus was, physically, bodily resurrected. He's not teaching soul sleep here. We'll get to that as we get a little further into the book of Revelation, but I want you to see that. We will be firsthand witnesses of this. So why does Paul tell us this? He uses the words, the very last part of that passage, therefore encourage one another with these words. 
Do these words encourage you? Not my words, but the words of Scripture. Paul says, encourage one another with these words. Well, encourage us to do what? In the same passage in verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul is saying that living with the return of Christ in mind, that it is imminent, that he is coming, behold, he is coming in the clouds, should impact the way that we live. It should impact our sanctification. We should live knowing that he expects us to be pure in this life. He wants to see us sanctified as we're submitted to the Holy Spirit, that we abstain from sin. Verse 10, he says, but I urge you, brothers, same context, to do this more and more, that is brotherly love, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. All of this in the context of the the Lord's soon return. The doctrine of the second coming of Christ is abused as it is. Properly seen, biblically taught, biblically preached should spur us to sanctification and preparation in the now for the then. That's what the teaching of the return of Christ should do for us. And we should think about it. We should think about it. Again, I'm convicted in the fact that if my mind doesn't go there, why? What is keeping me from thinking about and and welcoming the return of Christ? How deep are my roots here? We will see him, or when we see him coming in the clouds, we will know our redemption is coming near. Luke 21, 25. And there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People feigning with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with There it is, in a cloud, with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption draws near. The picture of the Lord in or on the clouds is one of a return in judgment that will melt the enemy. In Isaiah 19.1, Isaiah says this, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt And the idols of Egypt, which will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. The very last paragraph of our study on the 1689, chapter 32, paragraph 3, says this, Christ desires that we be firmly convinced that a day of judgment will come, both to deter everyone from sin and to comfort the godly more fully in their adversity. For this reason, he is determined to keep the day secret, to encourage people to shake off all fleshly security and always to be watchful because they do not know the hour when the Lord will come. And so that they may always be prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Verse seven, every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. John Gill says this, quote, every eye shall see him. That is, everyone that has eyes shall see him. Or all men shall see him. The righteous shall see him and be glad. They shall see him in his glory as he is and for themselves and be satisfied. They shall rejoice at the sight of him. And they will be filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory. But the wicked will see him and tremble. They will be filled with the utmost consternation and astonishment. They will not be able to bear the sight of him. They will flee from him and call to the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and to hide them from his face. There are two distinct responses to the coming of the Lord. Excuse me. The question is, which response describes you or will describe you? What are the two responses? Well, Gil touches on it. There is a response of the righteous. They will see him and be glad. 
They will see him and be glad because we know our redemption draws near. We will be changed and he will complete the redeeming work. Response two, though, is the fear of coming wrath. Every one of us will respond in one of those two ways. Think about that. Every single one of us will respond in one of those two ways upon the return of the Lord Jesus. Response number one, the fear of the coming wrath, Revelation 6, 12 through 17. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among rocks of the mountains, calling to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne <clears throat> and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? There will be a response of incredible fear and trepidation on the unbelieving and the unrepentant. But for the believer, how will we respond? First Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in his, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When will his glory be revealed? When Jesus comes back, will he be hiding his glory? No. That you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't think it's strange when fiery trials come upon you. One of the reasons that God brings trials tribulations and persecutions into our lives is to loosen our grip on this earth, this world. Verse seven continues, even those who pierced him. This is a direct um, quoting of uh, a passage in Zechariah that we'll look at, but in John 19 um, verse 37, let me, let me read up just a minute as this is as Jesus is, is dying on the cross and has just died. And it was the day of preparation. And of course, the Jews in their um, desire to obey the law of God perfectly said, we can't have these bodies, dead bodies hanging on the crosses because we've got the Passover coming. So let's get the bodies down and let's, let's hasten their death by breaking their legs. And you think about that. Why would breaking their legs hasten their death? Well, if you're if you are being crucified on the cross, your legs are what allows you to breathe. Most people that were crucified died of suffocation. And so to be, to be able to lift your body to get a breath, and that's where the agony of the cross comes in, that up and down motion trying to breathe. Um created an incredible amount of agony. So to hasten death, they said, let's break their legs. If you break the legs and you can't move your legs, guess what? You're going to die of suffocation and it'll be over. And they go to Jesus and Jesus is already dead. So what does the Roman centurion do? Verse 34 of John 19, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. He also says this on, on this same passage and they also, which pierced him, his hands, his feet, his side, when they crucified him, both the Roman soldiers who actually did it, and the body of the Jewish nation, the rulers and the common people who consented to it, at whose in instigation it was done, these people being raised from the dead shall see him with their bodily eyes whom they so used. What is he saying? At the return of Christ, 
there will be a bodily resurrection. And those that were complicit in crucifying him will see him. John is referencing back to Zechariah 12.10, which says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him for as, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Can you imagine losing your only child and how bitter that loss would be? The scripture says that at the return of Christ, that's the bitterness and the anguish that will lay hold on, on those who crucified him and rejected him. In other words, their blindness will be lifted and they will enable, they will be enabled to see what they have done. And how do you describe that? Does the word regret do that justice? Think about that. When they realize that the same Lord that comes back as a conquering king was the one that was nailed to the cross, and they were complicit in that, and they realized. Think about, think about the high priest who did nothing but study type and shadow about the coming Messiah. When, when he realizes that the Savior that is, that is coming as conquering king is the one that he put on the cross. Can you imagine the regret? Zechariah says they will mourn as one mourns for an only child. The only thing I can think of in scripture that, that gives it some comparison is Matthew 27, 1 through 5, with Judas. When mourning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And what did he do? He hung himself. Does regret describe that? There was a realization that came on Judas when he realized what he had done. There is not a repentance here to salvation. That's not what's in view here. But there is a realization of what he did. You remember the centurion that, that um, pierced the side of Jesus? In the Gospel of Mark, that account, he looks up to Jesus after the veil in the temple is rent. And he said, truly, this is the Son of God. Imagine the realization that you just pierced the side and were complicit in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then coming to the realization that this is who he claimed to be. How do you, how do you quantify that regret, that remorse? But it will be. Verse 7 continues, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This expands the meaning of Zechariah 12.10 that John references back to, because in John in Zechariah 12.10, it talks about the inhabitants of Jerusalem mourning over looking on the one that they have pierced. In, in Revelation, we see that it, it goes beyond that. It, it expands to the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And this is a picture of universal judgment here. Isaiah 45, 22 and 23 says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. There will be a universal bowing of the knee to the sovereign King, Lord Jesus. Romans 14, Paul reminds us, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every, every tongue shall confess to God. 
Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. He's referring to the bowing of the knee here. And the highly exalted Lord Jesus Christ in verse 9. Bestowed on him is a name that is above every name, verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They shall see him and wail. Even so, verse 7, amen. Even so, amen. What do these last three words mean to us? Well, Webster's... In, uh, and I always go to the 1828 version. It's way, way better. Uh, defines amen this way. It says, as a verb, it signifies to confirm, to establish, to verify, to trust, or to give confidence. Um, as a noun, it means truth, firmness, trust, confidence. As an adjective, it means firm, stable. In English, after the oriental manner, it is used at the beginning, but more generally at the end of declarations and prayers, in the sense of it being, be it firm, be it established. When we break out of our Baptist mold occasionally and we say, amen, what are we saying? Confirmed. Confirmed. Agreed. So let it be written. So let it be done. It is an emphatic declaration of agreement or concurrence. Revelation 22.20 says this, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon, the words of Lord Jesus. And the response, amen, come Lord Jesus. Amen, come Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And the question this morning for us is, can we say that? Can we say, amen, come soon, Lord Jesus? Verse eight, next slide. He says, I am the alpha and the omega. Yeah, um, it's a term that was new to me, but uh, good to know nonetheless. This is a figure of speech called a merism. And a merism is a rhetorical device in which a combination of two contrasting parts of the whole refer to the whole. For example, we, we know this and we use it. Um, when we say someone searched everywhere, what do we say? They looked high and where else? They looked low. What is, what is that communicating? Is there anywhere they didn't look? No. If, if we looked high and we looked low, we looked everywhere. That's like the remote in our living room. I look high, I look <laughs> low, can't find it anywhere. Somehow it always manages to disappear. But, but when, when John says, re repeating the words of the, of, of the Lord Jesus, I am the Alpha and the Omega, we know that this is the, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Alpha being the chief, we hear the term alpha male. What is an alpha male? I've never heard somebody say, I'm an omega male. Have you? I've heard leading from behind. That's probably what an omega male is. Beta male is what they call them. A what? Beta male. Beta, yeah, beta male. But never have I heard omega male. But we know the term alpha male, right? The chief the best, the leader. In terms of the Greek alphabet, the first letter and the last letter, with this rhetorical device or figure of speech, what is being communicated to us? When Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega, what is he telling us? All in all. He is the all in all. He is the incomparable everything. What is lacking? In the person of Jesus Christ, if he is the Alpha and the Omega, nothing. He is the incomparable everything. There is no lacking. We started out earlier. How has the Lord Jesus failed any one of us? Oh, we've had disappointments in life. We've lost loved ones. 
parents, siblings, children, we've had disappointments, but what we've never had is disappointment in the person of Jesus Christ. He's never failed us. He's never forsaken us. He is the in, incomparable everything. Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. In other words, let him step up. Who is like me, God? Let him step up and show himself. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. John quoting, and we'll see this as we go through the the study in the book of Revelation. John takes us back to the Old Testament repeatedly. The best way to interpret Scripture is how? With Scripture. We're not making up new things here. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is, who was, and who is yet to come, or who is to come. This is bookended with verse 4. If you look back at verse 4, we see the same statement. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Just a few verses down, we'll get to this shortly. Revelation 1.17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forever." More and I have the keys of death in Hades. The second point is that there is a promise with power. There is a promise with power. Have you ever made a promise that you couldn't keep? As a dad, nothing makes you feel lower than that when you promise one of your kids that you will do something, and to the best of your ability, you follow through and you can't. We have to be careful when setting up false expectations, don't we? But what's wrong with us making promises? We get to keep them all? Why not? Is it because we don't want to? Do we not have the will to keep promises? We're not God. We're not God. What does that imply, sir? We're not in control of circumstances. He is. Yes. What we lack is power. You're saying you're going to do something. How do you know you're going to do something? We'll try. We'll do our best. But we don't have power, do we? Our power is limited. Very limited. What is Jesus promising his return on? What is he basing that promise on? How do you know you can take him at his word? How do you know that? The last word that sentence, almighty. Almighty, yes. He's making a promise based on himself. Hebrews 6, 13. We're almost done, I promise. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of, of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. He guaranteed his promise so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, number one, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, the hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain 
where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. How do we know that God will keep his word? Can't lie. Can't lie. Psalm 41, 13, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. He is making a promise on his eternal nature and character. Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, the Alpha and the Omega. Isaiah 40, 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Are you tired this morning? Some of you look like you might be tired. Guess what? God does not faint or grow weary. Ever. Don't mistake the elapsed time before between his ascension, when his disciples were standing there, standing there watching him disappear in the clouds, to the fact that it is 2,000 years and we haven't seen him return yet. Don't make that mistake. He will keep his promise. Why? Because the last part of that sentence, he is the almighty. What does that mean? We use the term omnipotent. Or as I used to say when I was a young man, a little child, omnipotent. What is, what is the weakness in the power of God? Where's his weakness? We help God, or man attempts to help God create the world by saying it took God putting things into motion, then he steps back and evolution takes place to kind of finish the process. <clears throat> Nonsense. Scripture says he spoke it into existence. His word. There are nine references in the remaining part of the book of Revelation that, that is, uh, refers to God as almighty God. Do you think there's a reason for that? For the embattled church who is being crushed under um, the tribulation brought by Domitian and Nero, do you think it was important for them to be reminded of the fact that God is God Almighty, and he will do what he says, and he will, he will come back and, and redeem his people who are being persecuted and abused. Nine references in the book of Revelation. Last reference I will give you this morning is Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed it, and I will do it. Is there any ambiguity in that? He will accomplish everything he has purposed to do. And what has he purposed to do? He will come back and, and come for his bride and complete our redemption. Reminder this morning for us that I want to encourage you with is let your mind ponder this. Behold, change your focus. He is coming. The question that we naturally ask is, well, when? The answer we get from scripture is he's coming what? Soon. Are we there yet? Soon. There's a reason he doesn't tell us the day. The question is, are we ready? Are we prepared? Are you ready? You are ready if you're found in him without spot or blemish. You are ready if you can say, amen, Lord Jesus, come soon. If you're not ready, know this, 
He is patiently gathering his elect, but time is running short. If you're not ready, beg God for forgiveness. Beg him for mercy. Repent and be saved from the wrath to come. That is the message of the church for those who are not ready. Cry out to God that he might have mercy and save you from the wrath to come because he is coming. He will keep his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder that we have of scripture and we ask the Lord your forgiveness for off neglecting this. Lord, I pray that you will cause us, your church, to, to dwell and meditate on the reminder of the fact that your return is imminent. And if your return is, in fact, imminent, as we believe your word to say, then, Lord, what should we be? How should we be living? Lord, I pray that you would release us from the grip of this world that causes us to desire to put down deep roots. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to see what is beyond the here and the now. Lord, we we ask that you would give us eyes of faith that would see that you are coming soon for your bride and that you have a purpose, a mission that is critical for us here and now, which is to be preparing for your soon return, to go into all the world and preach the gospel because you are gathering your elect from the four corners of the earth. And at that point in time, you will come back to bring judgment. You will right every wrong. You will um, not overlook one sin. And when you come back, it will be a fiery judgment upon this world with no chance to repent. Lord, we pray that you would give us a soberness of mind that we would not be like the scoffers that are here to play and dance and get all that we can get out of life here and now. Lord, help us to see that we have work to do. Thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In your name we pray. Amen.